This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Tinderbox. Your torch goes out with a fizzle. With outstretched arms, you move slowly, looking for a light. Suddenly, you trip over something. Smash! You fall face first to the floor. It's a sad thing that your adventures have ended here. Have you ever played Shadowgate? Well, you pretty much have now. Shadowgate was a brutal game. There were dozens and dozens of ways to die, very few of which carried any sort of warning. Pick up the book. Oops, you died. Swim in the lake. Oops, you died. Climb down the ladder. Oops, you died. Torch went out. Oops, you died. We're not kidding. But Shadowgate is notable for a couple of reasons. One of which will actually tie back into our word of the week. We promise. The other reason is just interesting, so we'll start there. Dungeons & Dragons was inspired by lots of media that came before it, especially books and war games. There's a whole appendix in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide spelling out many of the influences that shaped it. But Dungeons & Dragons, and the entire tabletop role-playing genre, they, in turn, inspired all sorts of new media. And it's not surprising that when the medium of video games came along, Dungeons & Dragons had a huge influence. Many, many, many ubiquitous video game tropes and concepts owe their inception to Dungeons & Dragons. For example, in 1976, a man named Will Crowther and his friend Don Woods created the first ever text-based adventure game on a massive mainframe computer. If you're not old enough to understand the idea of how video games could exist before graphics were invented, let us explain. The game would deliver lines of text to you, describing the scene. And you would, in turn, type in commands to tell the computer what you wanted to do. And so, the game played out as a conversation between you and a computer, with the computer presenting you with situations, and you deciding what actions to take. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because Will Crowther was a huge fan of Dungeons & Dragons. So he built the adventure game, which later became known as the Colossal Cave Adventure. In the game, you were an adventurer, and through the medium of text, you explored a massive network of caves. You sought treasure, overcame obstacles, fought dragons, all the usual adventuring stuff. And the machine could be quite snarky. For example, if you typed kill a dragon, the game would respond with, with what, your bare hands? Just like a real DM, right? Except the game wasn't quite like a real DM. Because if you indicated that yes, you did intend to kill the dragon with your bare hands, the game would declare, congratulations, you've just vanquished a dragon with your bare hands. Unbelievable, isn't it? As an interesting note, the titular Colossal Cave was actually based on survey maps of a real cave network, Mammoth Cave near Brownsville, Kentucky. It is the largest network of caves in the world. The labyrinth comprises at least 390 miles of passageways. And we have to say at least because they keep discovering more of it every year. Crowther, it turns out, was an avid spelunker, a cave explorer, and he had helped produce survey maps of the cave network. 
Crowther also helped develop ARPANET, the forerunner of the modern internet. But Colossal Cave Adventure touched off an entire genre of video games. Soon thereafter, the famous Zork series of text adventures was published by Infocom. Roberta and Ken Williams came along and added a graphical interface to the text parser in the creation of the King's Quest series. And Ron Gilbert and Tim Schafer, along with other folks at LucasArts, created games like Maniac Mansion and the Monkey Island series to further refine the point-and-click adventure genre. They replaced the text parser with mouse clicks to move your character around in the environment and interact with objects. But then, along came the Mac Ventures series by developer ICOM. It was a series of three point-and-click style adventure games with a twist. You didn't see your character. The environments were shown from a first-person perspective, and your mouse cursor was like your hand, allowing you to interact with the environment. And this idea was further refined in games like the massively popular Myst series. Shadowgate was the third and most famous of the Mac Venture games, and eventually got ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System, where it truly gained renown. But apart from helping to create an entire subgenre of adventure games, Shadowgate was also interesting in another respect. In an era before dynamic lighting and 3D graphics, it had a lighting mechanic. You had to have a lit torch at all times, even in outdoor areas, which was kind of weird, but anyway, you had to have a lit torch at all times. Torches burned for a limited amount of time and then they would go out. And if your torch went out, you were plunged into darkness and then you would immediately take one step, trip, smash your head, and die. Because apparently you were extremely clumsy and also probably a hemophiliac. But then you were a prince and hemophilia is not uncommon in royal blood. The reason we bring all of this up, apart from trying to call attention to an amazing gamer who was also a spelunker, a pioneer in adventure video games, and one of the inventors of the internet, is because one thing that players are always talking about having in their pockets is a light source. Torches, lamps, lanterns, candles, light spells, continual flame torches, sunrods. The first time the players have to go underground, say into some colossal cave, they all end up digging out their character sheets and arguing over who remembered to bring a way to light the way. And the history of lighting is a long, complicated one. But most of that long, complicated history happens well after any era that could be called the medieval fantasy era. Serious lamps involving gas, electricity, and other fuel sources didn't come into being until the late 1700s. Until that time, we were basically just looking for better and better things to set on fire. Let's start by talking about fire. In the D&D universe, fire is considered an element. It's a thing. But fire isn't really anything at all. We know, it sure seems like a thing. But it isn't. Fire is actually sort of a special effect. It's a sign that something is happening on a chemical level. Specifically, combustion is happening. And to understand combustion, you need to understand a little bit about energy. There's all sorts of different chemical elements in the world, and some of them really like to combine. Others like to stay on their own. And what will combine with what comes down to energy. Imagine you have a spring and you just lay it down on the table. It won't do anything, it'll just lay there. But now, imagine you stretch it way the hell out. What's going to happen when you let it go? 
it's going to spring back to its normal natural length, right? Well, the stretched out spring is in a high energy state. The spring is loaded with energy and it wants to get rid of that energy. The resting spring is in a happy, low energy state. Just like the spring, different elements and different combinations of elements also have different energy states. Some are higher than others. Some are lower than others. Oxygen loves to combine with stuff. It loves it. Oxygen is just loaded with energy. So given half a chance, it'll combine with almost anything it can. And just like a spring going sprung, oxygen will release a lot of energy when it does combine. In this case, it gives off that energy as heat and light. And that is what we call fire. Combustion is an exothermic reaction. It's a chemical reaction that releases energy. Well, actually, fire is more of a chain reaction. You might wonder why, if we're swimming in a pool of oxygen right now, why everything doesn't burst into flames. If oxygen is so keen to combine with stuff and release heat and light in the process, why isn't everything always on fire? Well, that's because most of the stuff around us is already sitting pretty in comfortable combinations. Oxygen, for example, tends to combine with itself in the air. And carbon and hydrogen, which are some of oxygen's favorite partners, also tend to stick to each other and to lots of other things. To get that stuff apart, you need to put a little energy in, kind of like stretching out the spring. Because you need to put energy in, we call that an endothermic reaction. So let's say you have something loaded with carbon and hydrogen, like, say, a piece of dry wood. The carbon and hydrogen are stuck together happily. The oxygen would love to get in there. So you add a little bit of energy to get the hydrogen and carbon riled up. And when the carbon and hydrogen start to separate, the oxygen rushes in and wham, carbon dioxide, water, and heat, and light. And the best part is, the heat that gets released then jostles more carbon and hydrogen so more oxygen can get in there and make more carbon dioxide and water and heat and light. This is what's called a chain reaction. And it's why once a fire starts, it keeps going until it runs out of fuel. So, to have any sort of fire at all, you need three things. Oxygen, fuel, and some initial energy. Usually a spark of heat. Oxygen is pretty easy to come by, which is a good thing. We need that to live. Interestingly, we need it for the same reason that fire exists. Because oxygen reacts so readily with so many different things and it spits out energy when it does, our body cells have little factories designed to trap the energy from other types of oxygen reactions. Other living things use other forms of chemical reaction to power themselves. But we're aerobic creatures. We need oxygen to make the most of our energy. Fuel is a little bit trickier. And most of the history of illumination is about the search for better fuels. Sure, wood burns, but it doesn't burn clean, and it doesn't burn bright, and it doesn't burn long. It's inefficient. About 70,000 years ago, humans discovered that there's better stuff to burn than the dismembered limbs and corpses of trees. Animal fat. And so, they would fill seashells or turtle shells or carve rocks with dried moss that had been soaked in animal fat. Why does animal fat burn so well? Well, it's a little complicated. But basically, fats and oils are just complicated molecular chains and networks of carbon and hydrogen. And because they are complicated and have lots of connections between the individual atoms, they have a lot of energy locked up in there. 
and remember what happens to high-energy things given half a chance. Fats would much rather combine with oxygen to make water and carbon dioxide. And so they do. And they burn hot, and they burn efficiently, but they also burn slowly. But even animal fat isn't quite the best you can do. And thousands of years ago, the Babylonians discovered places where the ground exuded a thick, black, sticky, semi-solid substance. If you remember our episode on the sarcophagus, you know all about asphalt, tar, and moom, and the many uses for the sticky substance. Chemically, by the way, these are petrochemicals, which comes from the word petrus meaning rock, and are very similar to animal fats and oils. They're just a bit more complicated, and that's mainly because they come from long-extinct plants and animals. But what about all the folks who didn't live near bubbling pits of sticky black tar? Were they just stuck with sticks? Obviously, they discovered that you could make candles out of animal fat, which you know if you listen to our episode about the Chandler. But they also had other options. For example, if you've got a big forest near you, especially a coniferous forest, one filled with pine trees, you could make your own pitch. What's pitch? Pitch is a form of tar that you can make by heating wood. The process is called dry distillation. The idea is to heat up wood without causing it to catch fire. And now that you know how fire even happens, you can maybe guess how to do that. Do you have an answer? Pause the podcast if you need a moment. Did you get it? The answer is to heat up the wood, but pump or bellow away all the air. No oxygen, no fire. If you dry distill wood, it turns out you are left with charcoal and pitch. Charcoal is solid carbon. It burns pretty well and it has lots of other uses. Pitch is a viscous, oily fluid that is waterproof, sticky, and also burns very well. Pitch was used to waterproof thatched roofs, ships, baskets, all sorts of things. And if you soaked a rag with pitch, you could then set it on fire and you'd have a torch. By the way, pitch isn't the only oil that you can get from plants. You've cooked with olive oil or vegetable oil or rape oil, right? Yes, we said rape oil from the rapeseed plant. But you've probably never bought rape oil in the store. At least you probably have bought it, but you didn't know it. And that's because a consortium of rapeseed growers in Canada decided to rename rape oil to Canada oil or canola oil. But let's say you don't have a forest near you. Maybe you have an ocean or a lake. It turns out that fish are also an excellent source of oil. Those fish oil pills you take because they help reduce cholesterol? Yeah, fish oil is a thing. And everyone from Scandinavia to North America to Southeast Asia figured that out thousands of years ago. They also figured out that whales have a lot of fat. And fat is basically just solidified animal oil. In point of fact, much of the history of the whaling industry was driven by the increasing need for fuel sources before we developed the technology to seriously extract fossil fuels from the ground. Lanterns, oil lamps, candles, and torches are basically all just vessels for some kind of fuel, and that fuel is oil, be it an animal oil, a plant oil, or tar, or bitumen. By the way, that's important. Torches aren't just flaming sticks, nor are they sticks with rags. The important part of a torch is whatever that rag was soaked in. 
And that brings us to the final piece of the puzzle. Oxygen exists in the air. Adventurers can carry some kind of fuel. But where do they get that initial spark? Because you need a bit of heat to get everything burning, right? The trick is to use friction. Friction is the force between two things rubbing together. When you rub your hands together really fast, you're working against friction. And working against friction requires energy. And that energy takes the form of heat. That's why you can light a campfire by rubbing sticks against each other, or by using a bow. Or by using a piece of flint and a metal striker. Such as those you might find in a tinderbox. A tinderbox is literally just a little box, and it contains a few things. First, it has a piece of flint in it. Flint is a mineral, it's a rock, and it's very hard and very rough. So if you strike a piece of iron or steel against it, a lot of heat gets released from the friction, and bits of the metal tend to break off. In other words, little sparks of hot metal flake off. So the tinderbox also contains a metal striker, usually an iron or steel device shaped like the letter U. Alternatively, it could just contain a piece of iron pyrite. Most tinderboxes also contain a collection of dried wood shavings or a bit of charcoal or something else that burns readily at very low temperature. That's called kindling, or tinder. And tinder is just a medium that catches fire very easily with a small spark. So, if you were having trouble getting whatever it was you were trying to ignite to catch fire, you dropped a little tinder on it and lit that instead. When the tinder started to burn, it would ignite the fuel. There's a lot of interesting little background fodder for this in your game. First of all, it's just nice to know what is actually in a tinderbox. It's also useful to understand that a torch is more than a flaming stick. Without a fuel, the linen wrapped around the torch burns away too quickly and inefficiently. But it's also very interesting to understand where oils come from. Tar pits were strategic resources. The lumber industry produces far more than just wood. Same with the fishing and whaling industry. And lighting and heating became more and more important throughout human history, and consequently, those industries became bigger and bigger. And that can drive some pretty interesting campaign stories. And if none of that is useful, at least now you have a precedent for breaking the hips and heads of stumbling PCs the moment the lights go out. Or feel free to just tell them that they've all been eaten by a guru. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.